Here we learn that mature faith is peacemaking faith. Abram sought the peace, and he paid for the peace by taking second place in the subsequent negotiations. He could have easily demanded first choice of the grazing land. He was the elder and the patriarch, not to mention the vessel of promise. But Abraham here demonstrates the virtue of meekness. Meekness is not pushing yourself forward. Meekness is not demanding what you are owed. Meekness is trusting your future to the promise and favor of the Lord. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Meekness is trusting your future to the promise and the favor of the Lord. I think we would all agree that's easier said than done, particularly in the world we're living in now. When everything's going great, meekness sounds like a really good idea, but when things are being taken from us and our peace and our prosperity is being threatened, then all of a sudden, meekness sounds like weakness and maybe even like fatalism. So how does this all go together? Here to walk us through it, this very relevant passage of Scripture, is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Genesis chapter 13. You've heard me say now many times that we read the Bible to learn about God, about us, and about how God saves us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, part of what it means to learn about us is to learn about how those of us who went before followed and served the Lord. We're supposed to learn from our family story. Apostle Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now that's very interesting, because he's saying all of that there to a largely Gentile church. He is telling these Gentiles that because they are in Christ through faith, they can and should read the Old Testament as family history. He says that these things happened to our fathers. He says that to Romans and Greeks. But they were Romans and Greeks who had believed in Jesus Christ, and that makes all the difference in the world. Paul says in Galatians 3.29, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Do you see that? Paul is saying, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ through faith, then Abraham is your daddy, right? He is your spiritual ancestor, and therefore his story is your story, and you should read it so as to learn from it. He says that explicitly in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come whole reason this got written down in the Bible, Paul says, is so that it could continue to be helpful to us. This story that we're about to read is one of those helpful family narratives. It contains several useful tidbits about how we ought to live as the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. So, Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. So learn this. Abraham learned from his mistakes, right? There's a lesson for us. The people of God make mistakes. We are not Jesus. 
So when you make a mistake, confess it, repent of it, turn around, and get back to your duty. Abram should never have gone down to Egypt in the first place, but having made that mess and having been rebuked for it, he's learned his lesson, and here he is now headed right back to Canaan, right back on track, right back to his duty. It's always better to do what you should do the first time around, but as we see here, it's also better late than never. All right, verse 2. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Here's something we might as well talk about now, That something we need to learn. God is not opposed to wealth per se. You know, Christians by and large have two wrong attitudes when it comes to wealth. Some of us think that wealth is always bad, right? Anyone who has wealth must have lied or compromised or cheated in some way in order to get it. And if they really loved Jesus, then they would have given it all away. But that is to deny an awful lot of what we see in the Bible. There are a lot of rich people in the Bible who appear to be loved and accepted by God. We could mention Abraham, Job, David, and Solomon from the Old Testament, but then also Mark, Phoebe, Lydia, Matthew, and even the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Paul says that he was both rich and poor over the course of his Christian life. And it seems at the end of Paul's life that he's very rich indeed. If he's able to pay for the the Nazarite vows of multiple people, I heard one scholar say that a Nazarite vow typically cost as much as $100,000 in today's terms. So whether Paul was reconciled to his family and had new access to his family wealth, we know he came from a wealthy family. Paul's testimony about himself is that he's been both. He's been rich, he's been poor. In his opinion, it doesn't really matter right? There's something to be said for either. When you've got money, you can use it to help other people. But when you don't have money, then you can use the experience of poverty to grow your faith in God. So let's just understand that Paul's perspective on money was kind of nuanced. Now, some of us find the ditch on the other side of this road. We, We think that God owes us money. We think that all Christians should be rich. This idea is sometimes referred to as the prosperity gospel. This is an example of what is sometimes called by theologians over-realized eschatology, meaning it's the error of thinking that everything that will belong to us in the future can and should and must belong to us now. See, it is true that God is working a plan to bring us back to all of our blessings. It's not true that we have all of those blessings in this present life without exception. We get first fruits, we get glimpses, we get appetizers. But in this fallen world, the principle of prosperity is resisted, right? It's breaking in, but as of now, the fullness of it lies ahead. That's why Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation, right? Now that word tribulation means hardships, persecutions, losses, deprivations. Jesus says, that's what you should expect, brothers and sisters, because the world is in crisis. The world is at enmity with God and with you. The world is dividing around the principle and the person of blessing. Now, that's a bit of a bunny trail, but we're going to have to go down at some point or another because Abraham becomes one of the richest men of his generation over the course of the story. Pastor Paul, let's go a little further down that bunny trail, if you don't mind. I think a lot of people in the church today don't know what to think about money. 
Some people are telling us that we should have a lot of money because God loves us and wants to bless us. And other people are talking as though money is the root of all evil and we should have as little of it as humanly possible. So what does the Bible say about money? Yeah, that's a good question. And it is a more complicated answer probably than most Christians I think would be expecting. Well, give us the three-minute version then. The three-minute version. All right, that's my that's my specialty. Let me <laughs> Let me try that. <laughs> Well, I I guess I'd say this. In the Bible, in the wisdom literature in particular, the perspective seems to be that money is a good thing, but not a God thing. In Psalm 49, 7 and 9, for example, the Bible says, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Close quote. So the psalmist there isn't disparaging money. He's just saying that it can't do the most important things in life. Money can't address the ultimate problems and the deepest pains of the human experience. You can have all the money in the world, but it won't help you when your brother gets cancer or when your mom gets Alzheimer's or when your child gets leukemia. Human life is an incredibly precious thing, the psalmist says, and it cannot be purchased or protected with money. Even rich people lose their loved ones to cancer. Everybody gets sick. Everybody grows old. Everybody dies. And money cannot shield you indefinitely from those realities. So money is good. It's better to have some than to have none. But it isn't ultimate. And it can't do many of the things that we want it to do. Second thing I think we would need to say is that the Bible warns about the dangers associated with money. People with money tend to be overconfident and spiritually insensitive, meaning their money tends to make them forget that one day they will stand before the Lord and give an account for their life. William S. Plumer, the old Bible commentator, says here, men who have wealth are always in danger of pride and self-conceit. And the consequence is that self-denial and self-loathing are far from them, without which there is no salvation, Close quote. So money makes us feel like we're doing really well because we've got that giant pile of cash sitting right over there. But that money isn't telling us as much as we think it is. It isn't telling us anything about how we stand before God. Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So if you think that your money indicates that God is pleased with you, or if you think that your money will protect you from God's wrath, then you are heading towards a very rude awakening. And we see that time and time again in the Bible. In Ezekiel 7, for example, the prophet says, they cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. Okay. But what about all those promises in the Bible that seem to say that God wants his people to be rich, if I can say that, that he wants to bless us? Sure. There are promises like that. Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Exactly. What about that? Well, it's very important to remember that, first of all, Proverbs aren't promises. They're principles. So, for example, Proverbs says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22.6. Is that a principle or is that a promise? I'm guessing it's a principle. 
it it is exactly we all know we all have personal experience maybe you're sitting right here as this guy i don't know i'm not i'm not judging i'm just saying we all know that sometimes really godly parents raise up really ungodly kids we we all know that but the general rule is that godly parenting will produce god-fearing kids that's a general principle but general principles are resisted and delayed in a fallen world so sometimes when we see a promise in the bible we have to ask ourselves when that promise will be realized jesus wasn't wealthy not in his earthly life did that mean that god didn't love him no Jesus came into a fallen world, a world temporarily under the power and dominion of the evil one, the thief who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So the principle of wealth and abundance is a resisted principle in a fallen world. And by the way, the book of Proverbs is very much aware of that. Proverbs 13, 23 says, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. So wealth and prosperity are often resisted and delayed for God's people because of remaining injustice and wickedness in the world. But promise delayed are still fulfilled in Christ. The Apostle Paul said, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. I know that's not the first time that we've read that verse, but hear that again. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. It's like every promise in the Bible is looking for Jesus. It's going to land there, but you might have to wait, right? Some of, some of the promises that we're going to have in Jesus, that we're going to say yes and amen to, are going to come later, after the final judgment, after all sin and all causes of sin have been removed from the earth, then the righteous will shine in the kingdom of their father forever so christians will be rich but we may have to wait a while to receive our full inheritance yeah that's a good way of saying it all right well that was definitely a bunny trail but it was well worth the journey that is very helpful let's jump back into the text at verse three verse three says and he journeyed on from the negeb as far as bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between bethel and ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now we see here again that Abraham is a man of faith. And we see that part of being a person of faith is responding to everything God says and does. God has just forgiven Abraham for making a major blunder. He showed him mercy when he could have cast him off. So Abraham worshiped. Now Jesus said that this is how it works. This is what people do. Do you remember the story of the woman who was weeping and washing Jesus' feet and the Pharisees got all offended at her display? Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus said that there's a connection between how much you're forgiven and how extravagantly you worship. People who've been forgiven much worship much. That's that's the connection. And Abraham is giving evidence of that same connection, that same reality. Abraham and this woman in Luke 7 received great mercy from God, so they were extravagant in their worship. Verse 5 says, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. 
for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Now, here's a lesson about faith as well. As long as we are still sinners, the blessings of God can become occasions for conflict. Sinful people struggle to manage the goodness of God. That's a major theme over the course of the Old Testament, and we see it being introduced here. Verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Here we learn that mature faith is peacemaking faith. Abram sought the peace, and he paid for the peace by taking second place in the subsequent negotiations. He could have easily demanded first choice of the grazing land. He was the elder and the patriarch, not to mention the vessel of promise. But Abraham here demonstrates the virtue of meekness. Meekness is not pushing yourself forward. Meekness is not demanding what you are owed. Meekness is trusting your future to the promise and favor of the Lord. Meekness is, in that sense, a subset of faith, which is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. As in the Old Testament, so in the New. Verse 10 says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Here we learn the danger of trusting in what your eyes see. Lot saw the possibility of riches, and as a result, Lot didn't see the dangers of contamination, because the men of Sodom were wicked sinners against the Lord. The point is this, be very careful about the company you feel compelled to keep in your pursuit of riches. The Apostle Paul warned about this as well. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. That's in the New Testament, right? Lot was led astray by the lust of the eyes, but Abraham trusted in the promise of the Lord. Verse 14 says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. 
Here we see God responding to Abraham's trust with additional promise. And then we see Abraham responding to additional promise with fresh worship and sacrifice. Old Testament and new, this is the dance of faith. Thanks be to God. Amen. I like that line. A mature faith is a peacemaking faith. I want to go back to that if I can. As I'm sure all our listeners know, these are troubled times. There's a lot of conflict in the world, and increasingly, there's a lot of conflict in the church. So what does peacemaking faith look like in our world? Yeah, I I think meekness could fairly be described as maybe the least understood of all the Christian virtues. Uh, We sometimes say that meekness isn't weakness, which is good, but then we don't really go on to define what it is. And the same, I think, could be said for peace. Uh, What is that? Uh, What does it really mean to be a peacemaker? There's a psalm on this that I really find helpful. And, And in fact, it appears to be the psalm that Jesus is quoting in Matthew 5, verse 5, when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It sounds an awful lot like Psalm 3711, which is translated into our English Bibles as, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace, closed quote. So you can see there how meekness and peace go together and how those concepts are actually rooted in the life and worship of the Old Testament church. When we use Psalm 37 as a guide, it would seem that meekness is about not feeling like you have to fight everything in the world. It's about playing the long game and trusting that God sees and will even the score and replace all that has been taken in the end. So Psalm 37 begins with these words, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Don't worry so much, right, about who's getting away with what, because actually no one gets away with anything. God sees, God cares, and God comes. So chill out. That, that's my paraphrase of that verse. Now, this isn't a call to passivity, right? So we, we need do right, yes. Seek justice, yes. Work hard, yes. But understand that some of your efforts will be thwarted. Some of your gains will be eaten away. Some of what should come to you will be taken wrongfully by others. That's okay. God's got this. Psalm 37, 8 to 11 says, refrain from anger. That's worth saying again in these turbulent times. And I'll say it one more time. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. We aren't going to protest or shout or defy our way to the kingdom of God. So do what you can. Do what is right. Eat your losses and wait for the coming and for the recompense of God. Mm, Yes and amen. It would be hard to think of any message more timely than that. And as always, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. 
You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. See you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 